with me to the passage that we read together in Mark and chapter 6. And keep it open as we will in a few moments work through it together. Now, those of you who are, have left home, going back home can be complex. It might show itself in the way you, you maybe remember going home to your parents' house and immediately reverting back to an, a past version of yourself, perhaps into a sort of teenager again, with the same arguments with your parents and with your siblings, the same old patterns and, and habits and the same old comments. Your mother says the same little thing to you. Once you're in the home and you're there overnight, all of a sudden the old little arguments you used to have with your mother would just pop back out with your father and with your siblings. And you might go away again because you've turned back into a past version of, you've reverted back. You might go away driving home hating that old version of yourself. Hating that, the old family dynamics. Sometimes familiarity really does breed contempt. And as we pick up the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 6, that's sort of what's happening. Jesus in, in, in Mark's gospel up to this point has been traveling all over the region performing miracles. He is gathering attention. He has been quite crucially preaching and teaching that people should repent and follow him. And so as we see Jesus coming home, you might expect a hero's welcome. Supporting the, the local lad made good. But as we read, and as I think you'll notice, that isn't the case. So two headings this evening. The very first one, very simple. Jesus faces rejection and unbelief. Read again with me. Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, it's very simple. Jesus doesn't make a big deal of coming home. He carries on doing what he has always been doing. He goes to the synagogue he begins to teach and preach. And similar to chapter 1, if you read through Mark's gospel, the people are amazed at the authority and the authenticity of his message. It was biblical. It was powerful. It was gracious. Which is what we can feel when we are hearing the word of God preached and applied. It can feel, this is Logically biblical, this is powerful. There is grace here, it's reaching to me. But amazement is only part of their overall response. Verse 3 Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with him? And they took offense at him. Now, have you ever been through that situation? Maybe those of you who are younger here in this room, 
Maybe you've more recently experienced this moment where somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I remember when you were in your nappies. I remember when you were here crawling around. And I guess there is an element here in this passage of over-familiarity with Jesus. No, I, I know all about him already. I know his family. None of them are remarkable. They've not gone through, none of them have gone through further education. He's just a carpenter. What right does he have to talk to us? We watched him grow up. We saw him as a baby. What right does he have to talk to us? Now, that's one level of how this applies, but I do want to say that it does go much deeper than that. And it's not it's a much sadder problem because it's not just small town envy or over familiar embarrassment as to who this is. That little comment at the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. It's really telling because that word offense in the Greek also means to fall away. They fell away from him. They took offense to such a degree that they walked away and fell away from him. And it's the same word used in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, describing those who fall away, who don't believe. Because when the difficulties and the trials come, when the hard times come, and what the parable of the sower partly is telling us and preparing us for is that the hard times will come. Trials and difficulties and pains and sorrows will come. And they get offended. In that parable, they get offended that it's happening. That life is hard. That there are sorrows and sufferings and they fall away. And so that word being used again here means that they're not just embarrassed. They're, they're not just over familiar with Jesus the problem in Nazareth, in his hometown, is the problem of unbelief. The problem of refusing to accept Jesus and receive his words. For them, familiarity has bred contempt. And they've let that now blind them. Because that's what our sinful hearts do. It's not mere ignorance. It's not merely over-familiarity. And some of you will have grown up coming here. Some of you will, you're here because your parents have brought you here. Your grandparents have brought you here. And you might, on one level, feel over-familiar and a little bit embarrassed. Maybe this is what you learned in Sunday school. And maybe it's still the sort of the same stuff. And it just feels a bit childish or old-fashioned. And that over-familiarity sometimes breed a deeper contempt because our hearts blind us. We choose to search for offense. Something that will prevent us from following Jesus. That's what they, they chose from that over-familiarity. They chose to let it lead them to Offense, they were looking for. That's what our hearts are looking to latch onto something that will pull us away from Jesus. For them, 
that over-familiarity led to them pulling away, falling away. Now, I'm not going to deny that some of us, in fact, many of us, to some degree all of us, can have deep baggage about God, about the church and churches, certain churches even more than others. Some of us will have baggage about Christianity in general. Some of us will have baggage about Jesus. And don't just think that, and I'm not going to presume that just because you're here tonight doesn't mean you've got a lot of baggage to work through, a lot of difficulties, a lot of confusion, a lot of things that in some ways you've potentially compartmentalized. You just ignore and you sort of grin and bear it for an hour here. In the morning, maybe in the evening, you grin and bear it and then you go on your way because you've not processed through what you struggle with. You've, you've not tackled what you're confused about or what has happened to you or what you've misunderstood from the past. And partly because I sympathize with that baggage and because the Bible in the book of Psalms gives us permission to articulate that. That's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms. They're not all praise and joy. There is lament. There is confusion. There is depression. There are Psalms that don't end on a positive note. And what a wonderful gift that is. Because many of you, as you are praying and singing to God, can't bring yourself to have a positive note. You know it's true. And you know he's the one you've got to turn to. But it's not all rosy and sunshine the sorrows and the baggage and the trauma and the hurt of this world the pain and the grief what a beautiful thing that the psalms give you permission to be angry with god to talk back to god to lament and sorrow to god you're more than welcome to talk to others about that don't just hide it away about what's holding you back from trusting and following Jesus. Talk about it with God. He gives you permission in the Psalms. He gives you permission in his word to do that. Talk about it with each other. Bear one another's burdens. There are burdens in this room. And yet, at the same time as that, are our proud hearts, are your proud hearts and my proud heart looking for offense looking for something to prevent us from bowing the knee in humility to the only one who can save our souls from sin and judgment. And sometimes the issue is that we feel we know details already about Jesus. We know things about him. We've learned about him. We've heard about him. Oh, you might remember very easily the Christmas story, Jesus was born in a manger. You might remember the, the, the cross, the story of the Easter and the cross and the resurrection. You might know facts and deeds. You may have been Sunday schooled well. You've gone through youth fellowship. You've gone to, maybe at this stage of your life, thousands of sermons. You know details of the Bible. You know details about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. These guys knew the details of his life. They heard his teaching. But here's the question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? 
Not just details about him. Do you know him? Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And that means from his words, there is precedent for saying that those who really know Jesus aren't those who necessarily know the most stuff about Jesus. Aren't necessarily those who are most familiar with Jesus. And it may be, no matter what age and stage that you're at, in fact, even more so an issue the older you get, you may look around the room and think, I don't know as much as them. That wonderful godly person there who has been following Jesus, same age or roughly the same age as me, but I don't know. Look how close, look how much they know. I'm not like them. I don't know as much as the elders. I don't know. I'm not like them. But those who really know Jesus are simply those who listen to him. It's not how much you know. It's simply the question, do you listen to him? That's not then about you and about how often you've come here and about how well Sunday schooled you were and how much you remember. That's not what we're talking about here. It's very simply, do you listen to him? Do you want to listen to him? Do you want to know him? Do you want to receive his words as life? Do you believe he is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Lord? So do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? Do you believe in him as Savior and Lord? Do you devote your life to living for him, to listening to him? Because it's really important to get that right. Because of verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out about, he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus, therefore, underlines the fundamental problem. He's amazed at their lack of faith. And that bears fruit in the fact that he could do no miracles there. Because faith and belief, trusting in Jesus, in who he says he is, trusting in what he's done for you, Faith and belief are necessary for encountering Jesus' miraculous help and healing and care. When it says he could not do any miracles there, it's not in the sense that it was physically impossible for him to heal, but that it, it would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent to do miracles among them. 
Because whenever the king and the kingdom of God is rejected, it's inappropriate then for the king to share the joy and the life and the healing that the kingdom brings. Every miracle he does in the Gospels is a sign of who he is, a sign of his authority as the king of the coming kingdom. And all of it is a a foretaste of the kingdom to come, of heaven to come, of the new creation to come. It's all, you know, why are there not more miracles? Here, they're just a glimpse, a foretaste of what's to come. We're not guaranteed miracles in this life. We are guaranteed what those miracles hint at. Everything evil and everything broken and everything that should not be overturned and fixed and made right for all eternity. And for Jesus to give them a taste of the kingdom to come, when they are rejecting him as king of that kingdom, would have been unjust, inconsistent, and wrong. How can you taste the goodness? How can you, can you feel the, the breaking in of heaven in the here and now through these miracles? How would you be given that if you just to the king, oh, I don't like you, I don't care, I take offense at you. It would have been unjust for him to do miracles. And at the same time, Jesus isn't completely rejected. There were a few who do come to him and look past their preconceptions and look past their baggage and they trust in him. They've watched him grow up, but they clock on. It's not just about the details of his life. It's about we see him. We know him. There is something different about him. I'm going to trust in him. And they come to him believing he can do something miraculous to help them. And a few sick people were healed. We read that in verse 5. But on the other hand, it is only a few. Few people here were willing to receive him by faith. He's amazed at this. They've had all the advantages. Some of them grew up with him, seeing him firsthand. Now, note, they don't say, we saw him messing about in the past. We saw him, you know, throwing stones at the quarry and swigging beer. We, we, we saw him, you know, kicking dogs growing up. We, we saw him mess around. We saw him ringing a doorbell and running up with it. No doorbells. Knocking on the doors and running up. None of that is the issue. They can't point the finger at some sinful child who's now pretending he's sinless. That would have been the easiest. That, would, that should have been the very first thing. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, that's the first thing that would make you go, if you knew the man growing up, I've got no time for him. Nonsense what he's saying. He's not the king. He's not the Messiah. That's not, that's not what caused the offense. They went looking for it purely out of a sense of, what right does he have to talk to me? 
He's just from a poor background, from a, a carpenter's son. We know his brothers. It's just over-familiarity. That's the, that's the thing that leads them to take offense and say no and fall away. Not we've seen things that would make us disbelieve what he's claiming. They've had all the advantages. Some of them grew up with him. He's preached to them. He's taught them. He's carried out miracles. They've seen them. And yet they were blind. Blind to his identity. Deaf to his message. And they hardened their hearts against him. So he leaves them behind. He goes on to the surrounding villages, teaching there instead. And you know, this, it's fair and just for Jesus to do that. C.S. Lewis argues in his book, The Great Divorce, that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says at the end, thy will be done. Because if we choose to ignore him, reject him, he'll say to you, yeah, okay, you'll get your wish. Your will be done. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what it means when you just say no to me. I don't want anything to do with you, God. I'm going to ignore you, Jesus. I'm not going to bow the knee to you, Jesus. Okay, God says. Your will be done. And the warning is, as Jesus walks away, if we reject Jesus, even if we know lots of things about Jesus, he will let us keep on rejecting him forever. Hell is not full of people who are wishing they had another chance to believe in Jesus. It's full of people ever more hardened in their rejection, gnashing their teeth and weeping, but sinning more and more and more and more. They don't repent. They don't regret. Oh, they regret having had the chances, but it's not as if if you gave them the chance there in hell, they would jump at it. The parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Laz uh, the rich man in hell in that parable isn't going, give me another chance and I believe in you. Because his heart is hard and Jesus has let him. He has, he has removed his common grace. He's removed the gifts of this world. He's left that man just with himself in the fullness of his sin. We must not presume that we will always have a chance to respond to the call in our lives. It may be Jesus will walk away. So if you don't yet know Jesus, and maybe you are working things out, but please, don't presume don't presume you'll have another chance tomorrow, 10 years' time, the end of your life. Don't presume. But if you are weighing him up, 
if you are hearing more about who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Messiah who came to rescue sinners like you and me, not because we deserve it. You might think you're the unloveliest, worst sinner, worse than everyone else in this room thinks that they don't know how bad I am. That's not the point. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he died for us. And the more you learn about his love, his grace, what he's done to buy you heaven, paying for all of your sin, if that's you and you're wrestling with all of that, you're weighing that up, however old you are, however much of the details you know, however little you know, listen, do you know him? Do you know his love for you? Do you hear him calling to you? Poking your soul tonight. Don't say no. Don't reject. Don't take offense. What are you waiting for? Why not tonight put your trust in him? That doesn't mean you have to have all the answers yet to all of your questions. We all, everyone in this room still has questions. Some of us are looking forward to heaven to asking those questions because we're still confused. But you may well tonight find yourself knowing Jesus enough to want to know him and follow him, to find his grace, to find his forgiveness, to find his strength when you are weak, to find his hope when you've got no hope left. But then alongside this warning, this, this part of this, this, this reading that we had tonight, those who do follow Jesus also learn that just as Jesus himself is rejected, so will we. That's the second point this evening. First point, Jesus faces rejection and unbelief. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to be someone who rejects and unbelief? disbelieves, doesn't believe in him. But the second point is, Jesus' followers will face rejection and unbelief. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. But if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples to reach more places at the same time. Going out in twos means that there was a more reliable testimony. They, they could share and they could tag team and they would back each other up and talk through the evidence of who Jesus was, what he had done. They could call on the same passages of, of the Old Testament that Jesus had preached and has said numerous times, this is me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I'm the snake crusher. And notice, they had to do it urgently. 
He just had a go. Don't pack too much. Don't faff around. Go. And they had to do it with flexibility. And so you see the details about how hurried and unprepared they're meant to be. Just go. There's also here in verses 8, uh, 7, 8, and 9, there are the details are also a little clue to the Exodus story back in the Old Testament. And that Exodus clue, that Exodus theme is actually picked up through Mark chapter 6 and through Mark chapter 7 and 8, the little clues of all the bread, all the, the, the miracles out in the wilderness, all culminating in the great I am, walking on the water. All of it just showing that Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater rescuer, who's coming to not just uh, uh, save us out of slavery to some oppressor who lives in this world, some bad government and some bad education system and some bad culture and value system. That's not the big thing Jesus came to do, as important as those things may be in our lives. He came not to win them out of slavery out of Egypt. He came to win them out of slavery to sin, to rescue them out of slavery to sin and death. This is the exodus he's going to bring. But that little detail here about don't bring this and don't bring that, just go, is similar to what was told to the Israelites. Don't bring this, don't bring that. Get out of Egypt. Go. There's a lot there to study, and some of you will want to pick up on those themes in your own private study as you read through Mark's gospel and how the thread works through of rescue, rescue, rescue. That's what Exodus is all about, departure for a rescue. Here is the rescuer. Here is the rescue story. They're meant to go out bringing the rescuer to more and more people urgently. Then there's that little detail about shaking the dust off their feet. Now, that's something that really special and pious Jews did every time they were in Gentile territory, every time they were with the, the sinners of the world, every time they were with the outsiders, with the unclean. And it was meant to be, we want to have no trace of uncleanness on us. Now, that tradition, that cultural idea, and it's just a cultural quirk of that time, Jesus repurposes that visual imagery of shaking the dust off your feet, not as a sense of, oh, don't go near the Gentiles. That's very much a theme that he goes against in Mark's chapters 6, 7, and 8 but he's repurposing that visual image so that his disciples should, as to how his disciples should view those who reject them and the message of the rescuer. That dust shaking did not symbolize that everyone who rejected them was at that moment completely doomed. Because since the people they were doing it to would have understood the image, the action, as marking them off as unclean. 
I'm not unclean. I'm not a Gentile. I'm a, I'm a, I've no, I know the word of God. I go to synagogue every week. How dare you? It gave them something to think about. And so there are times where we might provocatively and cheekily warn someone of the wrath of God and the danger of rejecting him even when they're rejecting your message. The gospel should be the thing that offends, not us. So I'm not saying go around offending people and just say, well, I'm being cheeky, I'm, I'm trying to warn you. It's the gospel message, it's the rescuer message that should be the offensive part. Because it sounds like good news, a rescuer has come for you. What it's also saying is you need rescued. And people don't like that part. We shouldn't be the offensive party. We shouldn't be offensive as we share that message. But the message will offend. And when it does, you may at times walk away. You may say something to make them think. Drop a little hand grenade to make them think about it. Walk away. And later on, they may think about that. And God may use that to bring them to faith in the rescuer, Jesus. But these verses aren't universal, specific instructions as to how all of us should do evangelism. We're not doing evangelism courses in any of our churches and using this as the sort of, this is the rule book of how you go about. Because Mark chapter 6, verse 30 if you read along, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught indicates that this was a defined mission. It was just, that, that was the mission there and then. With only a temporary length, we're not to apply all of what Jesus says to every church mission. So, for example, if somebody was going away on a mission trip, we shouldn't say to them, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. They're not wrong to plan and to raise money in advance to go. This was specific to then. And take note as well in that same way that Jesus gave them authority. Verse 7. So this was not a mission for any ordinary follower of our Lord. Jesus sent them specifically with the right and the authority to speak in his name. He gives them the authority to cast out demons and to heal but you'll notice that's still not their main job. Actually, going back in the Gospel of Mark, he prepared, he called the 12, and he said he was calling the 12 so that they would go and preach. He gave them the right to speak and preach in his name, and so they go out to do what Jesus also does right through the Gospel of Mark, to call people to repent and be forgiven. And just like with Jesus, as they go out and preach and teach the message of the rescuer, the miracles that they can do, the miracles that they are given authority to do, are merely signs that point to the true authority that Jesus has, the authority to conquer sin and death, the authority to win, and the authority to make sinful people like you and me right before God. 
That's what he did on the cross. This is Jesus. This is everything he is. This is everything he's done. This is what we share. And so there is an application that's for them. There is an element of this story that's for the disciples and how they were meant to go at this stage in the unfolding of the Gospel of Mark. And yet there are key principles we can pull away from this in the here and now. Number one, share urgently. As simple as that. If you know the rescue of Jesus for yourself and the goodness of friendship with Jesus, if you are following God because he has loved you and given you a grace and a mercy and a joy and a peace that nothing else can give you, even as you're in the depths going through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, even if you don't feel it, you know because you take his word at faith value. You know he's there with you. You know the shepherd is with you. If you know this Jesus, you have to share that. How dare we sit back and say nothing and crack on with whatever hobbies we have in life when we have dying people in a dying world living all around us? How dare we do our jobs or, or do our hobbies or, or love our children in a way that doesn't get across to them the love and the grace and the mercy and the peace and the joy and the delight of God? How dare we live our lives grumpy and passing that on to our kids, saying, oh, better go to church, and yet we're grumpy people all the time. We know the rescuer. We know God. You know Jesus. Share that. Share that sense of rescue with your family, your friends, your children, your grandchildren. Share the depth and the seriousness of it. Share the joy and the friendship of it. Share it to the homes all around. We're in the middle of a scheme basically here. There are so many people crying out for rescue. Share urgently. Go. Stop faffing around, he says. Take nothing and just go. Get out there. And two, expect a mixed response. Simple as that. Go share urgently. At the same time, expect a mixed response. Some may listen. Some may reject. Now that's both sobering. It's also helpful. Because doesn't that already sound like your experience in sharing Jesus? A friend who says they'll come. And they don't show. The family member who will get really mad at you if you even bring it up. That employer who warns you, don't talk about this. The schoolmates who make fun of you if you say a thing. That list could go on and on and on. not necessarily your fault. And don't 
take it too much to heart and blame yourself for how terrible and awful. Don't kick yourself. Jesus was rejected. We shouldn't expect any better than that. That's helpful in one sense. Expect it. It is also deeply sad. And Jesus was amazed himself, saddened by the reality that the people he would have known still took offense and fell away. Could we apply this to meaning, should we just walk away when people reject us? Should we just shake the dust of our feet? Don't throw pearls before swine. I've tried away with you. They're a lost cause. Well, we're not these disciples. Our situation is not exactly like theirs. They were sent out to speak with the authority of Jesus, to do things, miracles with the authority of Jesus to back up his teaching, his words. And so their rejection is therefore also a bit different to our rejection. We don't have the authority to know what's going on in somebody else's heart. So don't be too quick to try and just shake off the dust of your feet when somebody rejects the gospel again and again. Instead, We can and we should persevere with unbelieving friends and unbelieving family, confident that God knows better than we do the state of their heart. But at the same time, there is wisdom here that you don't have to perpetually run yourself into the ground and exhaust yourself with someone A Christian will face rejection and unbelief all the time and in many directions. But we keep going. And it's good and wise to think a little bit strategically about how best to use our time and our resources. If you're hitting brick wall after brick wall, getting nowhere with someone, you can ask yourself, if there's someone else I can talk to, is there someone else I can reach? Is there somebody, some other opportunity, some other open door that I'm not looking at because this person is draining my time? And there's somebody else right there looking for the message that we have to share. And sometimes walking away, taking a step back from the intensity of somebody's latching on to you and still not listening. Sometimes in in pastoral situations, those of you who are elders, those of you who have, male or female, you've, you've had someone depend on you for a spell really intensely. Sometimes the wake up call they need is to just say to them, look, it's going to be best for us if I step back for a while. It might symbolically warn that person as you symbolically shake the dust and walk away. It might tell them, oh, the opportunity. This person won't always be there. And they're not always at my beck and call. Where am I going to get the help? Now, if you're not a Christian tonight, remember all the warnings that are here. Don't presume. Even if you're curious, 
and thinking things through. Don't presume you'll always be curious. If you keep rejecting, your heart will harden. Are you willing to come to know Jesus now? Is always the question to ask. But Christians, any of you who know and love Jesus, who have been saved by the blood of Jesus and are now living in the life of Jesus, a life that shall never end. Christian, you've got to go. You've got to get out there. Life and death hangs in the balance for people. Eternity is at stake. We will be rejected. We will be ignored. And sometimes we have to walk away and go somewhere else and try some. Sometimes persevere. But whatever you do, it's not down to you at the end of the day. It's not down to me. We keep praying, praying and praying that God will use us, even the weakest of us, to bring people to lay hold of Jesus by faith, to bow the knee, to humbly admit, I need rescue. And the rescue is there. It's free. And it's freedom to know the rescuer. Amen. We're going to conclude singing from...